Good morning, everyone. I want to invite us just to close our eyes, stay in a place of prayer, open our hearts, and together, let's receive God's word to us from Ephesians chapter 2. I'm starting at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, His handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth were called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcised, which is just something done in the body by human hands. Remember. Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both, meaning Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His family, His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. And it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Our focus today is 
on communion. We're going to have a meal together, shared communion, as we bring the companion series to a close. Courageous Conversations, still got a little bit longer to go, but the, the sermon series being brought together. And I really want to thank Bevan and Jackie and Vaughan and Steffi from the Mercy and Justice team and others who've assisted as well for what work you've done to help us process and respond to and lament and confess and repent of and forgive both individual and systemic racism that has brought so much harm to people, to our world and to the church. We believe this is a gospel issue. And as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, when we get this wrong, we're not acting in line with the gospel. We're literally out of line, out of step, out of sync with the gospel. Wonderfully though, if this is a gospel issue, and it is, then the gospel will itself provide the solutions we need for the challenge. And so as we bring this short series to a close, it's also very important to recognize we still got so much work to do. It's not like we just tick this box and move on. As we've seen, this has been schooled into us. This has been worked into, our, into the structures around us. This is part of our story, our history. It's part of our geography. It's, it's part of our politics. It's part of the way we've been socialized. And so a lot of work remains. Work remains internal in the church. Learning as a community of Jesus followers to demonstrate the power of the gospel to bring real restitution and reconciliation. But as, as Bevan told me, he's convinced not just that there's a lot of work to do, but that what God is doing among us, we can share. We can share with our city. We can share with our country when we put the gospel to work in these ways. But let's be honest, there's a lot of work that must still be done. And part of that work we come to today as we bring this together, and we bring this together at this place of communion at the Lord's table. And in one sense, I want the table to be our preacher the Apostle Paul said that this simple meal of bread and wine proclaims, it's a herald, it preaches to us and it preaches to the world the Lord's death. This table will keep preaching the death of Jesus until Jesus returns. And Jesus told his disciples and he tells us, I want you to remember, I want you to remember me. There's so many other things that have brought you to the place where you are, but there's an intervention in history that you dare not forget. It is me. It's what I have done. It's what I have stepped into. Remember me. And our reading, as we read, reminds us that our unity is rooted in the cross. Our unity is rooted in the person of Jesus. It is rooted in the gospel. It is rooted in the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me make some comments from our reading as we come to the table. The first is that our place at this table is not earned. None of us deserve to be here. Not even our repentance earns forgiveness. As though repentance or faith could be transactional. God, I'll give you a bit of faith. You give me this. 
No, 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 it's all grace. None of us can obligate God to a thing. We're all here because of one thing. God's great love for us, if you read early on in Ephesians 2. God's rich, in mer- God's rich mercy, God's kindness, God's unmerited grace. We have not earned a place at this table. And this is what we mean when we say that the cr- at the cross, <laughs> the ground is level. The ground is level at the cross. None of us have brought anything that we should earn or deserve a place at this table of mercy. John Newton, who was born in the early 1700s, was at one time a slave to an African princess before being freed and becoming himself a slave trader. So what was done to him, he did to others. The victim became the new oppressor. And he became infamous for his his foul language, his immoral living, his aggression towards others, and his constant hostility and rebellion towards authority. And then he'd get into deep trouble. And several times he made resolutions to clean up his act, only to end up worse than before. Famously, during a violent storm at sea when he was a captain, he prayed for God's mercy and and mercy came. In the middle of the storm, some cargo broke loose and then plugged the hole in which the ship was sinking. And what seemed to be a crisis of a hole and another crisis of, of cargo breaking loose actually saved But even then, he continued in the slave trade for several years, but slowly the tide turned. In God's kindness, God's kindness wouldn't let go. And so John Newton left the ships and he found work on shore and he began to study the scriptures and he began to dig into theology. And he eventually entered the ministry, having tried a few times of being turned down because well, he was too common. He was too down to earth. They didn't, they didn't think he was suited. But he found himself loving the work that he got to do amongst the working class, amongst people who, were, who, who used to make lace. And most of them couldn't read, but they would work. And, and he began to minister to them. And, and part of his ministry was, was meeting with a friend and they would write they would write songs, they would write poetry, and he would choose this poetry because it was easy for illiterate people to remember the rhythm and the rhyme. But one of the features of his ministry was that he was forcefully honest about his own struggles, his own story. He owned and named his sin in the ways that he had just messed it up. And he insisted that his people be just as honest with him and with God. But out of that honesty came a celebration, a celebration that God in His grace was able to bring people like him who were so far away, so lost, back home to himself. So it was John Newton who famously wrote the lyrics towards the end of 1772 and, and shared it for the first time on New Year's Day, 1773, to the hymn Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound saved a wretch like me i once was lost but now i'm found was blind but now i see and the song continues but 
but he didn't even realize how prophetic that song was. And, and, and gradually, only in his later years, did, did he come to realize the significance of all that he'd done wrong and the harm that he had caused and the systems that he was part of in terms of the slave trade. And his repentance began to go as deep as the mercy of his song. His song went ahead. And he began to realize how deeply lost he was, how much harm he had caused. And so his repentance went layer after layer. And he joined the abolitionist cause and began fighting the slave trade as a mentor to uh, someone like William Wilberforce. And in God's exquisite mercy, in the next century, his song, Amazing Grace, written by this former slave trader, would become a source of profound comfort, strength, and resilience, and community and solidarity to the African-American slaves, the very people who'd suffered so much as a result of his sin. And God, in his mercy, was using something of the story of this broken man to help other people in their pain. You see, God is able in his kindness to turn our broken lives into trophies of grace. But yes, the kicker, the more honest we are that our place at this table is not earned or deserved, <laughs> that it's all of grace, the more ready we are to eat this meal. We can only come knowing we don't deserve to be here. You see, the second thing that Paul points out is we humbly remember that we were once deeply lost his words are without Christ, without citizenship among God's people, without any covenant covering, without any hope, without, any, without God in this world. And that is what we are without Jesus. And so Paul names these things. He goes there honestly. And so there's his confession, lament, honestly facing up to their story. There's deep irony here. You see, Paul, this Hebrew of Hebrews, this, this scholar of impeccable Jewish learning and lineage, <laughs> by the initiative of God, by the gifting and call of God, has become an apostle not to the Hebrews, but to the Gentiles. Now, he could regard that with sensitivity and kind of gloss over the exclusion. But he knows that we don't get anywhere without facing up to what has gone down. And so he names, remembers, calls them to remember. Remember, he says, twice over. To recognize. You see, confessing and lamenting is the first step towards healing. And reconciliation and so facing up to our own story is essential for us too and so I've asked two wonderful people from explore to share something of how 
courageous conversations has enabled them to look at their story, to look at what God has been doing through our conversation. Thank you, Craig, for inviting me to share a short testimony as part of the Courageous Conversations. I would like to share a little bit of my background with you first. My late parents were both of mixed backgrounds. They formerly lived in Rondebosch among a very multiracial community until the systems of apartheid forced them out. And this resulting in the family being separated geographically and some opting to be reclassified white. I grew up in a very strict Christian home. I am the daughter of a so-called street corner evangelist. My dad really cared for the poor and marginalized in the so-called colored area of Stenberg. We attended the Stenberg Baptist Church. Discussions of race-related issues was never a topic for discussion. Hi everyone, it's uh, PBC Church family. My name is Nell Brown. If I haven't met you yet, I look forward to the day when I can meet you. Um, just a little bit about Courageous Conversations and uh, the impact it's had on me. I grew up in a middle-class um, white family and uh, thought that our family is, is quite liberal and quite um, forward-thinking in, in the political thinking. And the one thing that really hurts me is man's inhumanity to man. Um, that's something that really cuts deep into my soul. Courageous Conversations has shown, that, has shown me that there are systems and structures at work by which society operates. Many not willing to take the challenge to walk the journey for the poor and the marginalized of society. The church has been an encouragement through preaching and discussing these societal issues with which I have been so deeply burdened. So embracing the courageous conversations has actually made me confront some of the things that I grew up with and some of the things that I learned and, and how I interpret things and coming from my frame of reference, um, what's the better way to do? Um, I realized that the apartheid system has had generational impact. It's caused a lot of harm, it's caused a lot of damage and it's going to take a lot of effort by many, many people to actually come up with the restitution that we actually need and that we need to um, actively be working on this. And I think that what the conversations have done have actually made me confront my own reality and look deep into my heart and say, um, what is my role in this and what is my role for doing things differently going forward? The more I learn about this, the more I realize how much we've got to unpack and how much how important it is to be listening to others and hearing the different sides of the story and seeing what we can do for the restitution and to actually um, do away with the harm and the hurt that has been done for so many years. The Courageous Conversations has given me courage to share some of my life experiences with you as part of the church family. I pray that through this, our hearts as Christ followers will be changed and that we will be able to live together as one in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much, Beryl and Nell. We appreciate you and are grateful to walk this road with you. Paul doesn't stop there. He then shows us why reconciliation is possible. He says, Jesus is our peace. He himself is our peace. And he explains that Jesus has destroyed 
the barrier of hostility or the dividing wall of hostility. Now, this is a, a technical term that described a very particular wall in the Jewish temple. It's a physical wall. It was interesting still standing at the time that Paul wrote this letter. It would be destroyed a few years later by the Romans, but it had been rendered obsolete by the death of Jesus. It was physically there. It was prophetically already destroyed. Now, the, the, the temple was divided into several courts, and the outermost court was the court of the Gentiles. And this court was separated from the temple where the Jews would worship by what was called the Mesotoichon, the dividing wall, this barrier wall which had warning signs to Gentiles. Basically, trespassers will be responsible for their own death. You go in here, you're going to die. Paul argues, while the wall is still standing, that in, the, in God's sight, the wall is gone. Access is granted to those who are far away. And no one else needs to die. Jesus has already paid the price that the law required. And so the power of the law to condemn is no longer in force. And Jesus now proclaims. Jesus takes up this role of preaching peace to those who are far Peace to those who are near. We've seen early in the series that this is not just a religious divide. This was ethnic and racial and political and cultural. And Jesus comes and we see in verse 15, his, his purpose was to create in himself. Hear this. One new humanity out of two. It's like we'd been split making peace and in one body and it talks about, it's speaking about Jesus's body but it's also has this analogy of pointing towards the church in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross and it's in the cross that he put to death their hostility and so he came and preached peace to you who are far away peace to those who were near and then he rams it home by saying through him through Jesus we both we all have access to the father by one spirit one new humanity Jesus is relaunching the human race to now live in ways that God has always intended and the basis of our unity is the work of Jesus on the cross and we, we need to understand this Unity for unity's sake is not going to work. Diversity for diversity's sake is not going to work. Why? Because it's, although it's a noble motivation, it's missing the means. It doesn't have the power to get there. It lacks the equipment. It just doesn't have the tools that the gospel does. The tools of grace, of humbly remembering, of confessing, lamenting, of working into reconciliation and peace, and of a new kind of person who follows Jesus. And so unity and diversity in the gospel of Jesus has both the motivation and the means. It's got the wheels to get there. Which means that communion in which we come to remember the death of Jesus. We remember his body broken. Why? So that another body, his church, can be healed and made whole 
and be one. We remember his blood poured out. His life ended so that others through his death might live. And one of the things that communion then does for us is it's another witness to our diverse unity. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, Paul captures and expands this logic. And he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving, for which we give thanks, a fellowship, a communion, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break, a fellowship, a communion, uh, communion a participation in the body of Christ? And he says, because there is one loaf, they would, they would break one loaf at the, at the Eucharist meal. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. We share the one loaf. Now, the language is quite careful here. The one loaf uh, represents the one body. But, but Paul's very clear to say, we're not one loaf. He says the one loaf reminds us that we are one body. You see, to be one loaf would just emphasize unity, but would it lack the idea of diversity? We are not like wheat that is harvested from the field out there, and then it gets crushed, and then it gets, you know, the, all the individual seeds have to just disappear into the loaf. And you end up with something that's quite different by the time you have a baked loaf of bread that comes out of the oven. You can't see the seed. But if we're one body, you can see the eye, you can see the ear, you do know there's a hand. We are, we are one and we're not crushed. We are diverse. Each part is distinct. Each part is valued. Each part is important. And each part is united to the rest. And if it were cut off, it would die. And the body would suffer. And then, and I'm not going to go there now, but he takes us. This work of Jesus gives us a new citizenship and a new allegiance to one another. Jesus trumps all other citizenships, all other identities. Not that they lost, but that this surpasses them all. And we receive a new family and a new household. Not that our old family is lost, but this surpasses them all. And we become a new temple that is not divided. And the truth was that the old temple would be lost. It had served its purpose. But now God has a people in whom he dwells and from whom he reigns and where he is worshipped. So let's go into communion. You know... We should be doing this together. We meant to share a single loaf and a single cup. We meant to break the bread together as Jesus did on the night he was betrayed. We meant to sup and sip. So today, as we come to work at our diversity and our diverse unity, we have to put in extra effort to be together. We have to acknowledge that 
We're separated right now by distance and some of us watching will be separated by time. But let's, as we prepare, recognize what we can do by the power of the Spirit, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's not limited by time. He's not limited by place. Paul could tell the church at Corinth, even though I'm not physically present, I'm going to be with you in spirit. And he goes on to explain that in this place of spiritual attentiveness, of being deliberately spiritually present with one another, the power of the Lord is also present. So let's do that as we begin our communion together. I want, you, I want you to pray with me. Just become still. Close your eyes and begin to see one another. Become present in your spirit. Look around the room. Give thanks for your church family. Think of all the diversity that is present. Think of the people who greet you at the door, those who often sit near you. Think of those who welcome you from the front, who get you smiling. Think of those who lead you in worship, in prayer, in giving. Think of those that you've been praying for. Think of those who come and minister with you, to you. Think of those who bring a word of encouragement. Become present in your spirit to the family of God, the household of God. And so, Father, as we come to communion, we thank you that the unity of your church goes beyond time and place. We thank you that this table brings us together. We thank you that right now, wherever we are, by your spirit, the power of the Lord is present as we remember you and as we honor one another. We also come to be deeply honest. We remember that it's grace. We have not earned a place at this table. And we are grateful to know, because we know we couldn't, we're grateful to know that it is the gift of God. And Lord, we come to own up to, repent of, turn away from any of our sins. We thank you for making atonement for us. For the legal covenant that upholds both righteousness and forgiveness. Thank you for making us one. One new humankind. Thank you for making us your community, your household, your temple.
so we come and consider the bread. Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. <laughs> it's for you. His body, his life, is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Jesus, we come. We give thanks for your life. We give thanks for your birth. We give thanks that you were a little baby, that you lived to show us what the kingdom of God on earth looks like through a man filled with the Spirit of God. And that same life, that same body grew up to be offered for us. You gave yourself. You gave your life. You gave your body. You were broken. We give thanks and we eat in remembrance of you. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes so Lord we remember you we receive your grace family thank you evening for joining us during this time thank you explore I want to bless you as we go so now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father and the close fellowship friendship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and always.